You're listening to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Well, hello again to another episode of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. Uh, Really excited to be with you again for this episode in which we have an interview with our good friend, Jason Miller. So uh, Jason, how are you doing? Hey, I'm great. I'm, I'm hanging out in my home like I should be with all this coronavirus <laughs> stuff. So I'm great. Uh, that's good. That's good. Uh, and Jason, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do when you're not uh, self-isolating? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, I live in South Bend, Indiana, uh, made recently famous by our mayor's run for president. I'm uh, the pastor of a church here called South Bend City Church, and we're kind of new. We started a few years ago. Um, when I'm not self-isolating, well, <laughs> I'm, an, I'm an Enneagram 5, so our self-isolating <laughs> is kind of my hobby. Um, uh, we'll talk about that. That's great. Okay. Yeah. Um, I like to travel a lot, spend a lot of time in Nashville with uh, my friend Seth, who's also on the podcast here. Um, yeah, but thanks for having me. Yeah, well, really thankful uh, that you found the time in your busy schedule right now to join us. <laughs> yeah, I cut uh, very kind of you. Engagements, yeah. Yes. Uh, so first, before we move on, I just got to ask: Do you know Mayor Pete? A little bit, yeah. Uh, he, when he was mayor, he did a clergy roundtable every month or so, so we'd be in that meeting. He also lives two doors down from him. I'm literally looking at his backyard right now while I'm talking to you. Really? Is he like grilling or something right now? <laughs> no. Yesterday, I saw him and Chaston in the alley fixing up these like old timey bicycles, which just felt like the most on brand thing in the world for the two of them. (laughs) That is just seems perfect. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That's amazing. So you live two doors down from Mayor Pete. I do. Yeah. I kind of like it's across the street, but I I have, yeah, I can kind of, I've got like a balcony that looks down into their backyard. So I stalk them on a regular basis. Okay. Uh, Very cool. Possibly creepy, but Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, all right. And you know the two Seths on this podcast quite well. Quite right? well. Yes, that's and right. And I'd love to hear from your perspective how you know them. <laughs> ah! <laughs> oh, man. Where do I start? <laughs> Seth Abram, uh, we met years ago uh, through a mutual friend. Um, can I tell? The, I'm going to tell the story. Yeah. Uh, a friend named Johnny who... Um, kept telling me that Seth was this really talented musician and that the church that I was working at should like bring him out. And frankly, I got so annoyed with him bugging me about Seth <laughs> that I went to a show just so I could t- so I could say that I had heard him and that he wasn't that great. And then I heard him and he was great. And then we became friends and uh, it's been like 15 years or something like that. Um, we lived together for uh, a few years before we got married and then moved on down to Nashville. And his kids call me Uncle Jay, which is like my favorite title in the whole world. That's mm-hmm. adorable. Yes. Yeah. And then Creekmore, actually, I met through uh, Abram. Um, can you guys help me when that would have been? It, it was, was. Dear Lord. I, uh, well, I think, I think it did happen. Uh, first time I remember meeting you is at the manor or your house, uh, the old one. And I was <laughs> yeah. we were practicing yeah. for a show. Okay. So, yeah. Yep. That's all I That remember. sounds right. Yeah, so that's going back uh, several years now, too. And uh, Creek and I get to hang out on a pretty regular basis to this day. He's in Goshen, Indiana, but we, we try to get him into South Bend as much as possible. Yes. That's great. And uh, just so we round out you know, the circle here, I barely know you from Adam. So we, <laughs> that's had, right. That's right. we had lunch, <laughs> what we think maybe 13 or 14 years ago with Abram. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so it's, it's good to reconnect with you. Likewise. Ironically, yeah. Jason's middle name is Adam, so I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well done. Uh, well, again, thanks for being on the podcast with us to talk about uh, Enneagram and uh, all things related to belief and faith, and uh, we're just yeah. looking forward to uh, we're seeing where the conversation goes. Yeah. yeah, me too. Yeah, Jay, so we we wanted to have you on this podcast. Uh, mostly, I mean, from my experience, from Abram's experience, you have this really unique gift of um, inviting people into difficult conversations without demanding they be anything other than what they are. Um, very a graceful, a graceful way of um, just interacting uh, with those things that we're not supposed to talk about. So as we, as we <laughs> kind of look into more 
um, things in the Enneagram and just in life in general. Um, just curious about your wisdom in the area of um, learning how to sit in tension and be okay mm-hmm. with it. Um, so first question, and this is going to be an easy knock the ball out of the park. Um, how would you describe or define a belief system? <laughs> uh, man, even even that gets a little tricky, right? I mean, yeah. uh, some people have what they would call explicit belief systems, I think, um, especially if they've been raised in certain religious environments where they were kind of taught to embrace uh, like a worldview or a doctrinal statement or something like that. Um, so it might live at that level of sort of propositional ideas I think um, then, of course, there's the actual beliefs that we live out of every day that might be the kinds of things that we've never named for ourselves, but they're actually operative in our lives. Um, But I think for a lot of people, especially if they're coming out of a religious space, they do have some sort of um, picture of ultimate reality. Hmm. And they probably have some language um, that shapes or that actually makes up that picture of ultimate reality and then their place within that ultimate reality. And so it might be as explicit as, like I said, a doctrinal statement, or it might be a little looser than that. Mm. But yeah, I I think a lot of us have a picture of reality that we are working with, whether we know it or not. Mm -hmm. And then when that gets confronted with some data that can't be um, integrated into that picture, that's when things get really tricky, right? Yeah, yeah. How would you describe uh, like the difference between faith and belief? Oh, yeah, so I, I stumbled into this recently and I thought it was really compelling. Um, certain Christian traditions uh, speak the creeds. Uh, so you might go to church on Sunday and you might recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or something like that. Um, and even if even if you don't do that, you might have heard of these uh, statements of belief. And they, they're often like referred to as like, what do we believe? Mm-hmm. And so you might say, well, we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, or Jesus Christ is only son or something like that. Um, and I, I just bumped into this and I find it really beautiful and interesting that um, uh, Diana Eck, who's a scholar of religions at Harvard, makes this point that the reason we call it the creed is that in Latin, the first word is credo, uh, which gets translated, I believe or we believe. But in Latin, uh, it actually means something closer to I give my heart to, to, this, to this story, to this picture, mm. to, to this apprehension of reality. Mm. Wow. Um, so yeah, so I think like in the in the West in particular, and I'm now I'm out of my depth when I make sweeping statements like that. But yeah, I think we tend to think of belief as kind of propositional, and it's the kind of thing that you could write down on a piece of paper. What do you believe about X or Y? And you're hoping that your language corresponds to reality. Um, but then, mm-hmm. but, but then faith, I think if we're going to really play it out, ought to be more like I give my heart to this. I, I live out of this picture. I. I I rest my consciousness in, in trusting like this picture of the way that things are, um, at a, like at a really deep level, uh, their belief, I think, you know, can live in the head and, and have nothing to do with where you live your life. Also, if you guys can hear sirens going by, I'm sorry, I live next to the hospital too. Hmm. Um, but faith is, faith is going to almost like sort of intrinsically require some kind of integration, I think. Yeah. So I'm curious then if faith is this picture of reality, you know, that, um, or these belief systems, uh, that you, that you talk about, uh, really represent how we view our world and our experience. I'm curious as to how, uh, you think this, uh, weird and wonderful thing called the Enneagram maybe plays (laughs) into that. Yeah. Okay. So talking to the three of you, I am by far the, the rookie on the Enneagram. I think I have like, um, what you might call sort of a da- dangerous amateur encounter with the Enneagram. Uh, <laughs> That's exactly what we like. Let's, yes. um, we, we only brought you on here to roast you. So that's, that's, the secret. <laughs> you know, there's plenty, plenty to be roasted. Um, yeah. I mean, okay, how about this? I'll narrate this autobiographically a little bit. Yeah, you know, when I, great. when I yeah. first encountered the Enneagram was actually like um, maybe 10, 12 years ago. And uh, I was in the room with 10 or 12 people. And one of the people was in, was a sort of Enneagram expert um, that's out there in the world right now and published. And a, a friend of mine um, says to that person, hey, I, I think Jay's a five. And then that person who's never met me before just sort of described the inner world or the experience uh, of the five. And I remember just like 
like being physically incredibly uncomfortable. I mean, like I went red in the face. Um, the kind of experience I think a lot of people have had if they've kind of found their number, so to speak. Yeah. So it, it quickly named my inner world in a way that was really helpful um, and sort of terrifying. Um, and then you discover that, you, you know, you can use it to understand other people. And it, it, it little by little becomes not just a map to your own experience, but a, um, a sort of a, a taxonomy or like a, a way of like naming and understanding the people around us. Right. And so mm. like then I, I go through the phase where that's really fun. Oh, my buddy's an eight. He's such an eight, you know. Uh, mm. Oh, that behavior. You're being such a three or whatever. So that was kind of fun for a minute. Um, but but then you realize like that what's happening at that point is that the naming system um, is is actually between you and reality rather than helping you embrace reality. Mm. Um, can I go wide for a minute? I like go walking in the woods on my Fridays, and mm -hmm. um, I've slowly started learning the trees that are in the forest that I walk around in. And for a little while, like learning the names of the trees, like increased my encounter with those trees. Um, but last year i realized it started to diminish my encounter with the thing itself because hmm. um, then i would walk by and i would just be like oh maple check and uh, I, I didn't yeah. have to actually like become yeah. present to the the thing right in front of me for what it was and so um so i think i kind of went through that phase with the enneagram where i realized it was actually diminishing my encounter with reality because i would write people off and put them in categories and it prevented me from really seeing them for the wholeness of who they are. And, and now I get to learn like from you guys that the Enneagram um, is, is like a way deeper and more complex picture of reality. So I think I'm swinging back into a space um, through teachers like you where it's, it's helping me name and understand the reality of myself and the people around me. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm kind of swinging back into a place where I think it's like, uh, like a really helpful system for approaching all of that. Hmm. Uh, I'm not even sure if that was a great answer to your question. Um, no, it was lovely. Thank you. Yeah, okay. that's great. That great. With the Enneagram, I think there's a lot of, um, I don't think people realize how much uh, the Enneagram is actually there to challenge their beliefs about themselves, mm. about how they perceive the world and, and others. Um, so you're in a unique position at a church where there are some things that you're challenging. Um, and how have you described and, and shaped um, why it's important to, for people to continually challenge their beliefs? Yeah. First of all, I should say that before I do that, I try to be mindful um, that, that if, if you're inviting people to actually reconsider their picture of reality, you're inviting people into trauma Mm -hmm. And so that kind of shapes a sort of pastoral approach for me. So I'm really passionate about it, but I've seen people who like, like they, they I, I feel like maybe have this kind of immature delight in seeing other people's worldviews fall apart. Mm. And I think that's really unfortunate. Um, so as I approach that task, there's a sort of, um, there's a tenderness, I think in me, that's like, this is going to be hard, you know? And if, yeah. if we try to move closer to reality, if we try to get our picture of the world to move closer to what's actual, that along the way, we all might have to let go of some things that are really working for us. Mm -hmm. You know, um, they're, they're doing something for us, you know. Um, so um, like a great example, uh, perhaps, is a friend of mine is a pastor and um, he was uh, teaching a workshop on the idea that you know scripture doesn't begin with original sin because of course it doesn't begin there but rather scripture begins with original blessing you know that it's the, that the first word about humanity is that we bear the image of god and god cries out and says it's very good and then only later in the story do we sort of move into a confrontation with woundedness or, or brokenness or whatever and he was teaching this workshop and um, this woman came up to him afterwards and she was really mad at my friend for saying that and she said i work with addicts and I, I lean on that original sin doctrine to fix them hmm. because like I, I need them to know how broken they are before we can do anything else. And I just thought that's a great example where she was aware that like a belief was, was, was operative in a way that was productive. At least she thought it was. I, and I'm, I mm -hmm. probably have different feelings about whether that really heals people, but whatever. Um, 
so that being said though like i think to believe in human beings as bearers of the divine image like one of the things that's unique about human beings is that we have this desire and capacity uh to understand reality mm-hmm. and to do it consciously and i think that's really beautiful um like speaking f- you know in in christian tradition um there's lots of concern for like what's true or what's real in the scriptures you know whether it's um jesus talking about what is true or whether it's uh, the promise that the spirit will lead you into all truth as if to say that the movement of god in the world is one that wants to move individuals and humanity as a whole toward a greater and greater apprehension of reality i mean i, I get really excited mm-hmm. about that. that's 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 really beautiful mm-hmm. um and so so like like i don't know what a church is doing if it's not trying to help one another apprehend reality more and more and more um but along the way like i'm just learning it's really really hard for all of us because we're gonna have to let go of some things that are working for us uh and you know ultimately i think the more we embrace reality the more it's going to work for us but along the way we have these sort of provisional stops like 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 rest stops in the toll road you know that we kind of hang out in because they give us some of the things that we think we need and then i think my right. job sometimes is to like walk into the rest stop and be like hey guys we got to get back on the road you know because we're mm-hmm. not there yet jay what would you say it is that keeps people um stuck in maybe unhelpful or unhealthy places when they when it's time to move on oh man i feel like i've seen a few categories maybe like what is it that incentivizes us to stay where we are um yeah i think for mm. some um it's some people I th- they actually have this really sort of just instinctual awareness that if i let that question into my view or that data point in i'm gonna lose like the security of thinking i had it all figured out yeah um and that can be really taxing, you know, like when you have a worldview that's not been challenged, you can move through the world sort of frictionless. Right. Kind of like slide through, but then all of a sudden your picture gets disrupted. So a lot of energy is going to be expended. I think other people, whether they know it or not, what's really driving them is some kind of tribal belonging. Hmm. So, you know, beliefs can become um, boundary markers for tribes. And so, um, I belong to this group or that group and in that group we just we see it that way we talk about it that way we don't see it this way we don't talk about it this way and I think belonging is also something that's at stake for people who are going to ask new questions and I think a lot of people aren't aware that those are the fears that are driving them to stay mm-hmm. where they are mm-hmm. but I still think they're, they're, it's going on under the hood right? right I'm struck by the parallels with uh, some of the Enneagram conversations that we've been having where, you know, if once we get beneath, you know, if the Enneagram is truly the thing that gets us beneath the thing, beneath the thing, beneath the thing, you know, then we, we have to become aware of the ways in which uh, we are coasting or the yeah. things that we cling to that have worked for us for many, many years uh, in spite of their limitations. And uh, so I think that there's, yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in, in what you're saying, Jason, about... Um, how you help, uh, yeah, members of your church uh, walk this journey of um, embracing reality as it relates to faith and belief. Mm. Yeah, uh, I, I think is it Richard Rohr who says um, the last great act of repentance is re- is repenting for all the reasons for all the good that you've done. <laughs> wow. And I think I think about the any like the enneagram illuminates that even some of the things that look virtuous within us we're coming yeah. from like we're 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 energized by a wound. Mm. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's quite yeah. the right language. You guys will be better no. at that than me. But like, yeah, that's but that's a really painful epiphany, right? It's like mm-hmm. if my picture of reality that included my picture of myself is going to like if, I, if if how I see myself is part of my picture of reality that's being confronted and is subject to revision. Yeah, like I don't know if it's more disruptive to have a shift in your picture of God or to have a shift in your picture of you. Mm. Yeah, but they're both pretty mm. scary, I think. Yeah, Jay, would you say that this is this is just kind of part of the process? This is how one practices faith. You have to uh, lose smaller parts of yourself or our identities or beliefs. Is this inevitable? I th- man, I sure think so. I I think I even think there's a really coherent way of reading the Bible 
that says the entire book is sort of a document of evolving consciousness of waking up and that you can kind of spot these moments and then you can put yourself in those moments which is you know i think a really faithful way of reading the bible but you put yourself in those moments and you can feel the way that like what god is really up to is he's leading people um into into a kind of growing that means letting go of some of how we saw things or wrapped our arms around things i mean i even think a lot of the grief that jesus gets is he he's doing and saying things that really they, they fundamentally disrupt the picture of reality that the people around him have and sometimes he's disrupting their picture of god sometimes he's disrupting their picture of the other and sometimes he's disrupting their picture of themselves but like in any of those directions it does not go well for him <laughs> like that's that's when the heat really comes hmm. uh, because it's so scary and so hard for us and yet like to be christian is to to say well whatever jesus is doing is what god does and mm -hmm. and so you kind of see god like in god's relating to us sort of like drawing us forward through those really painful thresholds kind of seems like you're saying you know when we get too stuck in our uh one perception of god or ourselves at any point in time that's what hinders us from being able to receive reality at its at its truest right i mean and, and lo love is always moving uh, we're always changing is our it's when we get fixed in one spot that you know we're obstructing ourselves from what is true yeah i, I appreciate you bringing up the love thing because so um i was thinking about this with with my parents i think anybody who you know has to is, has a relationship with your parents if you're an adult you can probably reflect on how dramatically your your apprehension of who your parents are has changed over the years you know um my mom grew up in uh, Southern California and I'm 37 and it wasn't until two months ago that my brother and I went with her to visit her childhood home, which is ridiculous. Wow. And there's a long story there. So I'm 37 yeah. and for the first time in my life, I'm standing with my mom in front of her childhood home and she's telling me stories I've never heard before. Hmm. And I'm looking at her and um, it's my love for her that compels me to update my map of her. Yeah. You, know, hmm. you know what I mean? Like yeah. rather than holding on to the picture I had, I'm like, God, I, I love you. You're my mom. I want to. I want to get as close to the reality of you as I can in this mind, this life, because I love you. Mm -hmm. um, but even there, like, uh, it's not that how I knew my mom prior was wrong, but it, it definitely was incomplete, you know. And 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 if I'm if it's not up for revision, well, then somewhere mm -hmm. love has has fallen short. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. That's a powerful story too. Yeah. Yeah, it was a big deal. Like I, afterwards, I took my mom out for a drink, and I was like, "I was like, mom, this is a big deal. I can't believe we just shared this experience. I can't believe I'm 37 and hearing all this from you." Mm. And, and um, yeah, like a lot in my heart um, was was moved by that. Yeah. So, I wanted to ask because you mentioned this, and I think it's an an important point that is worth uh, maybe some further discussion. That you, you talked about all this disruption that occurs when we challenge our kind of view of reality, um, our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of God, you know, the, the faiths that guide us, um, as trauma, you said it's traumatic. Yeah. And so I'm wondering what, um, and this is to use maybe a phrase that's now more common vernacular in a really helpful way. Uh, what is a trauma informed approach to that look like for you mm -hmm. as yeah. you navigate uh, a church community, you know, community of faith through this process of challenging one's view of reality. Yeah, I, thank you. I love that. Um, and, and trauma informed is a category that I'm also just kind of a, a rookie in, but I'm, I, I'm, but I really care about it. Um, so I remember a few years ago, uh, a, a friend of mine, a mutual friend of, of Abrams and mine in Nashville. Um, you know, he went through a pretty dramatic sort of change of worldview you know almost like you just woke up one day and the world as you beheld it yesterday was gone and and there was a loss of, of certain beliefs and uh what struck me was um a like he got so depressed he could barely get out of bed for a couple of weeks so you're seeing these signs of like real trauma real loss grief um suffering and b uh because of because of the world that he lives and works in he couldn't tell anyone because both his sort of 
social life and his work life were connected to uh, Christian faith. And so I was just watching this in real time thinking it's, it's really sadistic mm. that uh, a loss of certain forms of faith is within itself a trauma, but then we know that trauma is exacerbated by isolation. Mm. And um, I know that um, the empathic witness is a really important move in trauma understanding where if, if we suffer, um, the, the suffering is exacerbated if we don't have somebody who says, I see you. And I, and, I, and I recognize the pain of what you are suffering. And conversely, trauma can be healed in some ways. The, the, the one of the steps of healing is to find an empathic witness who just says, I see you and I, I'm, I'm holding space for what you are suffering. Mm. And so uh, like for Sapin City Church, one of our sort of cheeky little taglines that we actually really mean is um, Sapin City Church, a great place to lose your faith. Okay. And <laughs> you don't not, see that on many church billboards. Yeah. No, you don't. Yeah. And I'm not actually rooting for people to lose faith. Like I, <laughs> my, my worldview actually looks pretty darn orthodox uh, in a historical Christian understanding. But I, I just know that any growing journey means that there are going to be seasons, phases, stages of evolution, of letting things go. And it's going to be difficult. There's going to be a sense of loss or grief. And that that is all going to be compounded by isolation. And I don't know, I don't know the whole picture of how we help one another. But one thing I'm really convinced of is that solidarity with one another, uh, community and belonging, mm. are really beautiful and essential ways to be to be trauma informed and to walk with one another. So I work overtime to even while South and City Church in her kind of core beliefs and her way of preaching and worshiping is actually pretty orthodox. Right alongside that, we kind of work overtime to make room for people in evolution of belief, loss of belief, change of worldview. And we're looking for a kind of operating system as a community that 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 really works well for all of that, rather than sort of um, having to eject people who are going through that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things yeah. that that requires is then the rest of us, we, we have to be secure enough or grounded enough or at peace enough that somebody else's um, uh, erosion of, of worldview or change in belief isn't a threat to us. Mm. Yeah. You know, I think there's that other thing too, where it's like often we get scared around somebody else who's asking questions because their questions are rattling us. Right. You know, and then it becomes really hard for us to be with one another in a deep and healing way. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And that's really helpful because again, I think there are parallels here to um, when we lose our faith versus when we lose our sense of who we th- think we are, <laughs> you yeah. know, as mm-hmm. when, yeah. when the, those, those kind of stories that we all have and all carry of when we've encountered the Enneagram with depth and it's really wrecked us. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think it, it chips away at the certitude that we've carried and it's just so important just for the simple but profoundly loving act of someone just saying, I see you, right? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, that's powerful. If, if, if the Enneagram can help us be with one another, or like especially through that, like, I mean, that alone is worth the price of admission, I feel like. Like, you know mm, what I mean? Like that alone right. like makes it a gift for the world. Jay, I mean, you're being a five, your gift is objectivity in a lot of ways um and not to delineate between religious and spiritual and not because so much of that is just so incredibly intertwined but for those people out there that don't really identify themselves as religious or spiritual um how how do you and how would you suggest others confront their beliefs without retreating out of fear when something is challenged how do you how do you hold what you maybe believe in your gut to be true um and but there's this new information that's coming what's what's a good process or a good mindset to be in when going after that yeah i think um like anything that causes fear or anxiety there's a lot to be said for like like sometimes i'll literally picture and this might be kind of strange I'll, I'll actually picture myself, I'll, I'll take my hand in my head and I'll imagine myself sort of pulling the, th- the, the threatening question or the anxiety around it kind of out and looking at it in front of mm. me like, oh, what's, what's that fear? Huh. That's yeah. What's that anxiety? 
Um, you know when Dumbledore leans over that like weird thing in his office and uses his wand and he pulls that swirly wisp out of his brain and dumps it in <laughs> yeah. the pond? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Might be an obscure reference for some. There's something to that. Pull it out. Look at it. You know. Um, what what what's at stake here? What what am I what am I afraid of? What mm-hmm. why is this thing rattling me or making me afraid? Um, I also think you know many of us identify our picture of reality with the reality. And it would just be really, really helpful to remember that our picture of reality was was never reality. Now it mm. might it might point to reality pretty well, right? Um, another image that really helps me is um, so I, I live here near Notre Dame, and Notre Dame has this uh, the main administration building has this golden dome on top. They're kind of famous for it, and uh, every few years they regild the dome because what else are you going to do when you got all that money? And so they put new gold <laughs> on it. And I was walking by a few years ago. And there's all this scaffolding, of course, built around the dome. And I was, I was actually, while I was doing theology studies and I was really wrestling with some of this stuff, and it kind of struck me that um, reality, whatever it is, if you're religious, call it God. If, if you're not, just call it reality, whatever. What, whatever reality is, whether it's the reality about you or the people you love or the world that we live in or quantum physics, like whatever. Um, like the dome is reality and the scaffolding around it is our language and beliefs. And um, scaffolding is really good. Like it's really useful to have language and beliefs and worldviews and creeds and pictures of reality. But like all of that is the scaffolding around reality, right? And then at any point that you find a, a better scaffold that gets you closer and that's awesome. Like that's just all good. That's all upside, right? Mm-hmm. But it might mean that mm-hmm. some of the old scaffolding goes away. And I, I just think like, just to remember that your picture of reality was never reality, even though it might point toward it in a helpful way, mm-hmm. can like de-escalate some of the fear that we are like losing our grip, you know? Mm-hmm. To build on that metaphor, I'm not sure the scaffolding necessarily goes away as much as it just doesn't become useful anymore. You, you, yeah. You've built other scaffolding and it's still yeah. there. I mean, there's still belief systems about myself and my view of the world that are very present. And I, I know those, but I don't need to use those anymore. Yeah, I think that's right. It's like you, you carry all that with you, right? Yeah, I think, I think some of my work too has been to help people um, less unload the baggage of where they've come from and more make peace with it. Mm. It's like, yeah, yeah it's, it's still with you. You know, yep. It's that, that's it'll never not be part of your story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jay, curious man, how do you how do you go ahead uh, and frame this for your for your community? How do you communicate that? You know, I I often think about like like whether you're preaching or whether you're teaching the Enneagram or whatever. Like like our goal again, hopefully, is to like help one another make our way toward um, apprehending and embracing reality, like whatever that is, right? Um, but like as a pastor, for example, like I kind of alluded to earlier, like I don't think it's always wise or loving or fair to just, you know, throw the whole book at, a, at, at people, right? Like, um, so sometimes, sometimes I imagine um, that, that if, if true reality is something like the ocean floor, like reality at its deepest and truest, not, not that I have perfect access to that, but my best understanding of reality is something like the ocean floor, right? And in that ocean floor, you have trenches and you have little volcanic sort of croppings that sort of rise up. And of course, um, at the at the level of the surface of the water, some of those features of the ocean floor, they rise all the way up to the surface. And of course, we call those islands, right? Well, then it's the case that like wherever you set the water line, the surface is going to look different. So if you set the water line at sea level, well, then you basically have the map that we have of the planet right now, right? So the continents rise up and Hawaii rises up and the Caribbean or whatever. But of course, you start lowering that water line, the lower you go, the, that surface is going to change in, in really dramatic ways at some points. Islands are going to pop up that were never there before. And um, if you imagine somebody looking at the surface of the water at sea level, they've got one picture of reality. And you know maybe they just see the islands that show up on our maps right now. And somebody else maybe has a lower water line and they've they've they're working at a different level of understanding their map might look like dramatically different than the person who's looking at the surface but what's interesting right is the person who's looking at the surface it's not wrong right i mean like hawaii hawaii shows up at the surface of the water 
because all the way down at the ocean floor, there's something going on there and it rises all the way up. Right. So if, if you see Hawaii, you're not wrong, right? It's just that um, as we keep sort of lowering, lowering the water line to get to more and more depth, like new things are going to pop up. And I, I think that's a way of embracing wherever you are, first of all. You know, like it's not wrong and it's not bad if you're at sea level. And I, I don't even mean to like create some kind of snobby like hierarchy of depth because that can be really unuseful. But the but there is a point that like we're trying to map all of reality, which is the ocean floor. And so sometimes what I try to do too is like help people who maybe are moving from sea level to a, a deeper depth, like celebrate what you saw at sea level. Look at how right that was. Like, look at how good that was. Look at how true that was. But is there, is there room for you to kind of add, to fill out that picture while we lower the waterline on our way to hopefully, you know, like hopefully the journey of being human, right, is to approach that depth all the way. Um, not that we get all the way there, but like, what, like what could be more worthwhile than to keep trying to get closer to that the depth of that ocean floor? Yeah, that's really help, a helpful image. Um, it seems very five-ish in all the right ways too, as, as an Enneagram <laughs> five. So, so thank you for that. Um, but also in, in terms of understanding the depths of ourselves and yes, know, as as we fit into that reality. You know, we've been engaging in some conversations on this podcast about how do we parse out these big uh, ideas of ego and essence and how they uh, are often just kind of terms that are thrown out in the Enneagram world, um, Mm -hmm. but not maybe uh, explained with depth or with clarity. And I think you just gave us a helpful metaphor (laughs) for, because the ego is not something that, like we've said this before, the ego is not something that we want to get rid of. Yeah. You know, but rather to integrate it into a fuller understanding of who we are, you know, and not let it completely yeah. run the show. Mm-hmm. And so thank you for that. That's that's a powerful image. Yeah. yeah. Also scary if you think about the the water draining out of the entire earth. But Yeah, we don't we don't need any more images of global catastrophe right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I should think of a totally different metaphor until this whole coronavirus thing is done. <laughs> uh, I think it still holds up, but <laughs> yeah. It still holds thank water, you, yeah. you could say. Um, (laughs) I almost went there. I almost went there, but they didn't want to be the dad joke guy since I'm the old man on the podcast. See, I was thinking dad jokes jokes because I'm not a dad. So that's how that works. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I'm wondering, uh, you know, I'm mindful of the fact that you're leading a faith community in this weird, wonderful, sometimes nauseating world of Enneagram popularity. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, what's it like to pastor in the age of the Enneagram? You know, as it because you probably have uh, congregates who are, are obsessed with it, who some who don't care for it at all. I'm just wondering how it's been helpful, or perhaps even harmful or hindering, as you try to um, go about this work, uh, pastoring your community. Yeah, that's a great question. It is kind of a thing, right? It's funny, like. Any given week, you're aware that part of your community is somewhat Enneagram literate. And then within that faction, um, there are some fanatics, you know, some of those, um, some, some who are really enthusiastic about it are uh, approaching a, a really nuanced understanding. Others, you know, they're kind of living at the party game level, you know, um, yeah. typing from a distance, um, really behavior based kind of stuff. Um, I'll say as a pastor, like, you know, I, I think like in our community, we would say that that uh, God cares more about what you become than how you behave or what you believe. And so mm-hmm. if that's a baseline for us, that it's about what we are becoming, are we becoming whole, you know, healed, connected? Um, um, it's, it's a huge gift, right? Because I think what's I, like my theory on some of the popularity of the Enneagram among evangelical and sort of post-evangelical type people is that we have spent our whole lives being preached to about like quote unquote discipleship mm. or transformation, you know? Yeah. So we've been like hammered with this goal in mind, but given very, very few tools or, or given tools that aren't really great tools, you know? And so it's like, I don't know, not to stick with the water one, sorry, this just came into mind, but it's like <laughs> if we're standing on the East Coast of the US, and your entire life, all you've heard is these really passionate sermons about how we got to get to England. You got to go to England, man. And then somebody finally gives you a freaking boat. Yeah. 
And I think that it describes like the the passion on the Enneagram. Finally, somebody is actually helping us. We're discovering mm-hmm. a tool for self knowledge, um, and like to do all that deep subterranean work. So I get really excited about that. And then at the same time, I find myself every once in a while sort of policing the ways that maybe people are using it to just sort of become apathetic toward their own bad behavior, you know, Mm -hmm. or um, using it to see people one dimensionally rather than using it to help them see people three dimensionally. So I feel a little bit vigilant about some of those abuses, but also really grateful that we have this tool and it's fun to see people get really excited about it. it. It's interesting when you guys originally told me we were going to talk about like belief and tensions around belief and changing belief and the Enneagram. I love that. At the same time, um, to be honest, it was not an immediate connection for me because like I have a whole body of thought and experience around evolving belief and stuff like that. And then I have this sort of dangerous amateur encounter with the Enneagram. And I did a little bit of a little bit of work ahead of time to try to think about those two things. But I'm really curious why for you guys, this was an obvious connection, like between the things that you told me we were going to talk about with changing belief and all that. And then Mm. uh, the Enneagram. At least for me, like there was, um, I mean, like you said, anytime you start confronting things that you've held as part of who you are, um, trauma is triggered. And so anything from um, questioning a source, maybe that we'll have a guest eventually that is is controversial or I'm not sure I, I agree with what this person said. And what 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 do you do with that? Like, what do you do with that feeling? Um, and and at this and at the same time, the the belief structures and belief systems um, that we that we practice, whether it's a faith or some other practice, um, is intricately connected to our perspective of the world, which is often um, well, it is equated to our enneagram type. Um, so, so for me, that was. That was the instigator of trying to get you here to help communicate and clear that up a bit. Yeah, and if I may add, I, I think we find ourselves in an interesting, you know, aside from the COVID-19 crisis that we're in, uh, even before that occurred, we find ourselves in this uh, interesting, almost crisis of faith, at least in the West, where, mm. you know, we see the rise of what's known as the religious nuns, um, meaning N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, mm. uh, not Catholic nuns, but where people who uh, respond that they have no religious affiliation is continually growing. Um, and yet we have this surge of popularity with the Enneagram, which almost becomes its own, has become its own belief system and own place of certitude and certainty for a lot of people. And I find that fascinating <laughs> that uh, at the same time when uh, maybe the faith of, of our collective youth has been challenged and disrupted, some of us have kind of turned to this Enneagram thing uh, to look for answers in language and, and certainty. When in fact, I think that you know a proper exploration of the Enneagram is in itself disruptive. Um, because it does mess with uh, how we've constructed the way in which our interior world externalizes itself in all sorts of different behaviors and trajectories. And so I think it there's a connection there between, um, regardless of your religious or spiritual persuasion, there's, there's a connection between how we encounter uh, this view of reality and how we encounter this view of ourselves. And I think that it's, it, there's a fascinating connection that uh, someone like you, Jay, who's a pastor, uh, who probably knows more about the Enneagram than you're giving yourself credit for, can speak to. Yeah, that totally that totally tracks with me. Um, hmm. Like part of what you're saying, Drew, right? Like I think I've observed, and a lot of people are pointing this out right now very wisely, that um, there's sort of the way you believe and then there's what you believe. And a lot of people have swapped out what they believe, but nothing has changed in the way they believe. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Right? That rigidity, um, that sort of grasping, anxious way of holding uh, belief, whether it's belief about ourselves or or God or anything like that. Yeah. I, um, again, not to like be the champion of, of, 
of my tradition, but like I think um, if you start looking for it, you discover that that the experience of um, the Israelites and then the Christians, um, it almost seems like God has built this thing to disrupt that way of believing, you know? Hmm. So the Jews, for example, are, are not permitted any image of God, you know, which leads to them being accused of, of atheism in the Roman Empire. Because they're, the they're the only ones who, it seems, don't have... <laughs> At the center of their temple is empty space. Quite literally, empty space. You know, mm. the holy of holies is, is a is a is a, an empty space above the ark. Um, uh, you know, um, not to riff too wide on this, but like th this was actually another fresh realization for me this past year. Um, that there's something missing from the resurrection accounts. Okay, the thing that's missing from the resurrection accounts in the New Testament is the resurrection. <laughs> the resurrection is yeah. never narrated in the New Testament. How about like, that? Yeah. No, like literally when you get to the center of the center of the center, there's blank space there. And mm -hmm. I, like, I believe in the resurrection in all, like all the Orthodox kinds of ways actually. But I just think it's interesting that like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of them has the moment. Like when the power of God breaks into that dead body and raises it up, that moment is actually missing from the narration. And I, I it's almost like, the closer you get to the center, the more that you're going to be left with sort of wisps and grasps and um, at, the, at your peripheral vision of the corner of your eye, you're going to get a glimpse of ultimate reality because ultimate reality will not submit itself to our grasping and like that desire we have to contain it within our, with our, within our own perception, wow. you know? Yeah. And yeah. I really love that. Um, but man, it'll mess with you. Mm. Yeah. And yeah some interesting parallelism there right with the the empty space of the holy of holies and, and the empty yeah. space of the tomb right of the resurrection yeah. moment yeah and ironically the empty yeah, space between the four and the five that oh creek <laughs> yeah <laughs> that existential go, no go gap. there i want to hear that Tom. Yeah. yeah abram you'd probably more. be more more qualified to talk about this than i but the existential that, hole yeah the existential hole between four and five I think it does represent probably in this tradition we've been talking about the dark night. I mean, it's it's the it's the it's the tr trying to wrangle the the what feels like the tension between the head and the heart, mm. if you know what I mean. So it's that. I mean, it's the it's the complete identification with the mind uh, versus a complete identification with the heart. So if I'm completely identified with my head, emotions are endless in their capacity for me to try and figure out uh you know what i mean so yeah. it, i don't think they're i don't think they work well together when you're thinking dualistically um but they they do go hand in hand if if you're coming at it from a third way yeah yeah i think it just represents that inner that inner emptiness that most of us aren't connected to that fours and fives tend to be more mm. closely uh uh connected to but it's yeah. it's that that void that isn't. I, I think it's the void that represents um, letting go of smaller identifications with this self concept. I've always thought was me. Uh huh. I think that's I think that's what it represents. Right. Uh, and and you guys t just tend to be a little bit closer to that. I think. Wow. Abram, I don't remember the exact words that you've used before, but along the lines of that often presence feels like emptiness and that being present to reality is often terrifying. It's that existential gap. Oh my. Um, yeah. Is that well, ringing a bell? I th yeah, I, th I think so. I think what you're saying is, um, when we, when, you know, when, when our minds are so wrapped up in our self concept of, of reality or ourselves or of God, and we're doing the work of, of growth, we're letting go of, of the smaller understandings because we're moving, we're being affected by the world and our, 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 our understanding is growing. So our understanding of that has to grow. But that means we have to let go of smaller parts of us. I mean, exactly what we've already been talking, but the, the problem is the more you let go of, you don't have the same framework to understand. And so it feels like you're losing more and more and more 
and you're moving into openness, openness, openness. And that mm. is darkness. That's, that's, I do think that's what tends to lead to these dark nights. And that is, mm. um, that's the space where if I don't have anything to, gr- to grab a hold of reality with, that feels like em- complete emptiness and darkness and nothingness, mm. which it makes sense and it should, but I, I tend to think that's actually just a deeper, truer experience of presence than we've ever understood before. Hmm. I think you sit in it long enough, you find out that's actually that's that's actually a, a deeper understanding and expression of love. You just have hmm. you d- haven't understood before. I, I can't help but uh, also hear like just these resounding sort of connections to uh, Jesus's first beatitude in Matthew five where he says that when you find a poverty within you, which I like, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? When you have a poverty within you, hmm. yeah. yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is ultimate reality. Like, yeah, that, that, that very poverty creates the conditions for our, our I don't know, entering into or, or embracing or surrendering to ultimate Acceptance. reality. Yeah. I just wonder if there's something else here too mm-hmm. about curiosity um i don't know if you guys have seen probably just drew but there's a there's this disney movie called smallfoot yes yeah Yeah. there's a line in there that that always that caught my attention where i forget which character it is but he says the only thing stronger than fear is curiosity Mm. and i and i think it's i think it's fear that keeps us stuck in the places we think we need to stay in in order to to belong, right? I think it's fear that keeps our smaller self-concepts intact. And so I do think there is a something to say about curiosity here. I'm just wondering, mm-hmm. especially from, from the five perspective, yeah. there is something about taking in new and more and more information. There's, there's a, a, a voracious curiosity, I think, about the five experience. So I'm wondering how how that plays out for you, how that's played out for you and how you communicate this stuff too. Cause you mm. know, I think, I don't think it's curiosity that killed the cat. I think, <laughs> I think that's <laughs> just what people say cause they don't want to change. Oh uh, yeah. That's good. Oh. I know for me, like sometimes my curiosity and this will be kind of classic f- five terrain, right? But I, it's definitely true for me. Sometimes my curiosity is an exercise in, you know, making myself secure. You know, so I want to map the room, want to map reality, want to map my circumstance, want to map the future, want to map an issue so that so that I don't have to engage it until I feel safe within it. Um, but on the other side, I, I also know that for me, curiosity can be um, the expression of of love toward mm. every toward reality, toward everything and everyone. Right? Like um, that sort of like a contemplative knowing is a beloved knowing. Uh, I'm curious because because like there's something in in my and and then it actually I almost sometimes I almost can feel this almost physically that the en- the energy is m- almost like physically moving from my skull to my chest cavity hmm. when when the curiosity is is coming from um, like wonder awe love all those things kind of feel like they're sort of in a shared space you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and that can be my curiosity toward the people in my life, or, um, or, or the reason I go to the library and study theology, you know, or, or, or name the subject, you know. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it, to, to me, it seems like curiosity is more likely when your heart is open. Yes. Hmm. Which, which is a tricky thing for for the five experience, right? Yeah, even like I can I can sense myself using the things I know to foreclose or shut down challenges and conversations and other things when I'm when I'm trying to make myself secure, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Versus I can I can feel myself leveraging the same capacity in the opposite direction, you know, to to make myself open to subject my own perspective to revision. Right. Um, yeah, in in the other direction. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the five blind spot of intellectual arrogance? 
Sure. I'm, <laughs> you don't have to. It's a leading Here question. Here comes the roast. <laughs> is, this, is this whole podcast just to, so that you could talk to me about some of our relational issues? Yeah, this is an intervention. This is an intervention. This whole intervention. last hour was just to, I, to, to bring, bring me I just to know that's a way to stay not curious. Mm. Uh, it's a way to close my heart off because you're getting too close to something I'm not ready for you to see. Huh. Oof. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, my mind goes a few directions there. You, say a little more about that, just so I don't like go wide in a way that's not what you're getting at. If we're still talking about fear here, I, I do think each of the, the passions, you know, enneagrammatically or the, or the, uh, the emotional habits are just derivations on fear, uh, anger or sadness. So avarice is just a derivation of, of fear right it's it's a it's a way that i can manage or cope with fear um it's one version of that and so i'm just curious about you know we haven't really gotten too specific about your experience with with holding tension uh when it comes to these to belief structures and these kind of things and i'm just wondering mm -hmm. about how maybe the five for you has allowed you to open up to tension but also close off to it to be curious or not curious yeah i think i'm a little maybe when you when you mentioned avarice i just the way i really relate to that is the fear that uh life or people or circumstance will ask more of me than i have to give right it's like the hoarding i feel comes from trying to kind of counteract that fear mm -hmm. um yeah i guess i'm kind of asking you to contextualize it for the way that you've you've journeyed spiritually yeah i mean i so you know the way some of this stuff about like holding tension and evolving belief for me i mean uh be because i get really excited about like, i want my hands on the raw data right and i grew up in a tradition mm -hmm. that was um big 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 on the bible we were like we believe in the father the son and the holy bible you know mm. <laughs> uh, so so then you know i'm late high school early college and because i i really want to get my hands on the first source information you know if I'm, if, if that's what we do this with like with and so i was one of those kids that actually read the thing <laughs> and when you read the whole bible cover to cover like it it quickly doesn't work quite the way you were told it does mm -hmm. and so that was that was an early sort of because the the particular brand of christianity that i grew up in was especially obsessed with sort of being quote-unquote biblical um so when i went to the bible it, it just it didn't work the way i was told it did um that, that was that was like the big early disruption and then um you know finding voices that helped me read it differently was really powerful but one of the things that i i think i really embraced in studying scripture especially academically was uh, I remember a professor of mine said, um, scripture is not a solo, it's a choir. Hmm. And so they're, they're actually competing perspectives, pushing back and forth on one another within this. The Bible is a dialectic itself. So like the classic example that a lot of people love to use, that, that's really good, is like in Proverbs, there's a really clear cause-effect relationship between virtue and blessing. The book's operating system is hardwired with the assumption that if you are virtuous, you're going to be fine. You know, and that's in there in the wisdom books, right alongside books like Job and Ecclesiastes, which seem written specifically to like disrupt the very idea that virtue and blessing go hand in hand. Right. And um, and this is one of the ways where like actually being a Bible guy helped me hmm. because I, like I was like bred with this conviction that the Bible is true. And I still feel that I still believe that. But like if 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 you if you, it's like if you hold on to that book, but you let it take you where it actually wants to take you, <laughs> you're going to end up with a with a very different view of truth than this sort of flat one dimensional black and white kind of thing, because hmm. the book doesn't do that, you know. And so, um, in some ways, like I I kind of held on to that, but then everything else had to shift. You know, I held on to like, this book is a place that I trust, you know, I think that I turn to. Um, but I remember being in grad school and like walking out of my classroom, literally getting lost on campus because I was just stuck in my head like, wait, what? Hmm. You know what? 
what, if, 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 if the nature of truth is sometimes paradoxical, um, if the way that the Bible leads us into reality is it sets two seemingly contradictory things side by side and doesn't give you any instructions on what to do with that. <laughs> um, like there was a lot of years I could just feel that sort of like drawing me forward in a really complicated way. And then I think maybe what helped, to be honest, was right around the same time all that was happening, I experienced uh, some really intense um, personal suffering and trauma around some childhood experiences and um, spent 10 days in a mental health facility while a, a loved one, a dear person in my life, was in the throes of some really, really deep addiction struggles. And so I had this fairly intense sort of personal suffering and mental health journey happening at the very same time that my intellectual journey was getting blown up. Um, all the while, I found myself in really loving and safe community with some professors, mentors, pastors, and friends who made made room for all of this, and they normalized it. And like somehow, all of that in the cocktail, like somehow, all of that I think uh, worked together in a way um, to to kind of bring me to a point where I am now, where I would where I feel really passionate that. Um, that we have to create spiritual communities and conversations um, that help that help us embrace these paradoxes and the the fact that um, that our mental maps of the world are provisional at best, mm. but that it's always about what we're becoming, not just what we're believing. Like somehow, all of that got really settled deeply in me. I think, especially in those kind of high school, college, grad school years. And um, and now I feel really strongly about uh, making space for that for other people. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. It, it it does also again echo highly the what the Enneagram does. It, I mean, oftentimes when our beliefs shift, it almost feels like it's it's shifting underneath our feet without any sort of will or desire. It just sort of happens to us and. And as, as we interact with the Enneagram and, and stay present with our patterns, um, things just start shifting, whether we want them to or not. And, and it's painful and it's scary and it's weird. Like like any anything that actually helps you encounter reality, right? That like really yeah. is drawing you into reality sure. is gonna lead you in an experience where, like, like I think a lot of us, we actually want reality to be the servant of our minds. Right? So we have all these categories that are pre-built in our minds and then any bit of reality, any data point that comes in, we want it to fit into one of our pre-existing categories. And, and they're like reality as a servant of our mind. And like in some ways, aren't we talking about the transformation where the mind becomes a servant of reality? Mm. You know, where where we, we finally realize that reality is king and, and we, our, our perception's job is to sort of surrender or relinquish anything that um, prevents us from apprehending the way things really are right whether it's the bible or the, or the enneagram or or whatever right but that flip that inversion yeah of reality serving the mind versus mind serving reality that's just that's where the the terror is i think and the and the trauma yeah. and, the, and the fear yeah yeah that makes me think of um a quote from blaise pascal who says that we labor unceasingly to preserve an imaginary existence and neglect the real wow can you can you read that again? Yeah, Blaise Pascal says that we labor unceasingly to preserve an imaginary existence and neglect the real. And mm -hmm. to me, that's just based on the how the honestly a part of how we're wired for survival to stay fixed in one limited conceptual idea. You know, because to do the work of, I, I just think personal growth often makes us uncomfortable because we come into the world looking like this, and so this is how we think we need to be. And so we train other people to see us this way too. So then when we start to do the work, other people are like, hey, where where the hell do you go? Mm. You know, and then newer things, the stuff that we split ourselves off from in childhood starts to come into play. And so then we're like, what is this? Who's this? You know, like anger mm. for me most of my life's not been okay. But now that I'm practicing it and using it, it's scaring some people. But, you know, this is the a wholer, clearer, truer picture of me. Mm. So, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's so good, dude. I feel like we've been to church, Jay. <laughs> I hope we. I hope that's a good thing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean that in the best <laughs> way possible. It's, 
and mm-hmm. none of us can go to church right now. So, yeah, and that's true. Uh, I think I'm sick of all the live streams going on. So, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> thanks for this conversation. I really appreciate yeah. it. My pleasure, guys. Uh, thank you. Yeah. yeah, thank you for having me. Big fan of all three of you and excited to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. If you found this episode helpful in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. We are so honored to be on this journey with you, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Truthwork Media Studios.